I have uh, been fighting a little bit of a cold, and uh, it really wasn't noticeable until about 10 minutes before the first gathering, and then uh, all the stuff that happens started happening. And uh, anyway, so I have I have tea, I have lozenges, I um, I have a mute button if I need uh, it. But uh, if you wouldn't mind praying for me, I would really uh, appreciate it and need it this morning. Um, pray that the the message gets through in in spite of the weakness of the messenger. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter sixteen this morning. So if you would turn there with me, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The words are going to be up on the screen behind me. Um, we've been going through the Gospel according to Luke uh, coming up on a year now. We started Luke as our Advent series um, last year. And we've taken some breaks uh, here and, and there, but um, uh, we'll continue to take some breaks. But uh, uh, we'll be in Luke this week and next week, and then we'll get into our, our new Advent series um, starting the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and we'll go through Matthew chapter 1 and 2 together. Then on uh, Sunday, the, the, the 1st of January, is that year in review gathering. And again, uh, please participate Excuse me in that. Um, and then uh, the second, third, and fourth Sundays of January, our elders will be doing um, a reminder of identity series, reminding us of our identity and as, as a family and as servants and as missionaries, and so look forward to that. But after that, uh, pretty much we'll be in Luke until we get to Easter, and we'll finish Luke on, on Easter Sunday. Um, so this series uh, has been come to, to known as the Lover of God series, and, and where that comes from is how Luke begins the book. He says that he's writing an orderly account of the life and death and resurrection of this person named Jesus. An orderly account, and his intention is that this be such an orderly account that it could actually be used in a court of law as evidence, that orderly of an account. But he writes it to somebody named Theophilus, and the word Theophilus means lover of God. Now, whether Luke was writing to an individual of that name or Luke knew that he was writing in the power of the Spirit, that what he was writing would actually become Scripture, that here we are 2,000 years later and you hold in your hand writings that, that, that he put down by the power of the Holy Spirit and he's writing to you, lover of God, so that you might have an orderly account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is for you. It's for me. So Jesus was asked at one point, what is the greatest commandments? And another way of looking at that is, is to ask, if there's a God, then what does that God want from us? If there's a God, then, then how does that God, what is the purpose that God, that God has for us? And Jesus' response to that was this, Matthew 22, 37 and 34, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying all of scripture, the whole Bible, all of that is pointing towards these two things as the purpose of humanity. Love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. What does it look like to love someone? To love someone simply is, is wanting their highest good. If you want God's highest good, then worship him. God's highest good is to see his name lifted up and to be glorified, to be worshiped. That's, what he was, that's what, who he is and that's what we were made for, to worship him. If you love your neighbor, who's your neighbor? 
We often talk about what does it mean to love your neighbor. Your neighbor is someone who's not just the person who lives next door to you. Your neighbor is a member of your own household. Your neighbor is, is your coworker. Your neighbor is your, your fellow classmate. A neighbor is someone you run into at the grocery store. Whoever God puts into your path, that's your neighbor, and you're called to love that individual. What, is, what does it mean to love them? It means you want their highest good. Your neighbor's highest good is that they know Jesus. Your neighbor's highest good is that they have a relationship with their creator. Your neighbor's highest good is to hear the gospel and the good news. So we talk a lot about what it means to love God and love our neighbor, but this last element, love your neighbor as you love yourself, it's often an aspect that we overlook. And we think of the the other things that Jesus has taught us that seem to complicate the love of self. He says, that we're to pick up his cross and follow him. A cross being a symbol of death, a symbol of of torture, of execution, of pain and suffering. Pick up an image of death and follow after him. He says this in Mark, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We we talk about the cost of following Jesus and and it literally means willingness to lay down your life for him. And that doesn't sound like love of self very much. But the reality is, is Jesus, he isn't talking about some sort of spiritual masochism, that we're to hate ourselves in order to follow him. In fact, what he says is that when you follow him, when you lay down this life, you're actually accepting a better life. You're embracing a new life, an eternal life, something more, something higher. And ultimately, that act is an act of self-love. So this morning, we're going to be in Luke 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 through you, to you, and then we'll, we'll pray, and we'll, get, we'll go deeper. He also said to the disciples, there's a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you, entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray and we'll go into it. Heavenly Father, um, I ask this morning that uh, 
that the words people hear are yours and not uh, mine. I pray that you overcome um, uh, my weaknesses this morning. Um, I pray that you would remind us of, of what you've done for us. You remind us of our value and our worth. Um, and, uh, and I pray for, for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last week, Jake preached on Luke chapter 15, and, and what we saw in Luke 15 was there was three parables about things that are lost, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and two lost sons. And in each one of those stories, it's revealed the heart of, of what God is, is like in pursuing that which is, is lost. And those are beautiful parables, but the parables that we discover in Luke chapter 16 are quite different. They're very different. We're, we're going to look at one parable this week at the beginning of the chapter and one parable next week at the end of the chapter, and they're a, a, little, bit, a little bit harder to understand. How many of you, when I was reading that parable, were listening, going, this is weird, this is strange? You got all, all, all sorts of question marks about this one. This isn't a beautiful story about a woman losing a coin. This is, this is something, what's going on here? Right, And so uh, one commentator, he said this, he says, if Luke, Luke 15 contains some of Jesus' most famous and accessible parables, chapter 16 contains some of the most obscure and confusing parables. Confusing and obscure. That's what we're looking at this morning. So let's, let's retell it. The parable begins, or the story begins, with a master of a house. Okay. Now, uh, in Luke, Jesus has, has begun stories like this before. Um, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the story of a, of a master of a house who goes away on a long journey and he entrusts his household to his servants and uh, he unexpectedly returns one day and he finds that they have abused his household, they're, they're uh, abusing one another and he's angry and he's wrathful. In Luke chapter 14, we see another uh, manager, another wealthy individual, and this time he's throwing a banquet. He's throwing a huge party, and he's invited people to come, and initially they said yes, but they, they don't end up showing up. And so he too is angry because they said they would show up, and they didn't, and so he sends his servants out to go gather anybody and everybody who would come to the party. And so here we have another master of a house here in Luke 16. Now, to understand his wealth, his wealth wasn't something that he had in bank accounts. His wealth was land. And, and what he would do is he would rent his land to certain individuals who would do the work of taking care of the land and farming it and raising it, and then from the produce of the land, pay him rent. And so we see one guy in here who has olive trees. And so he's pruning the olive trees, and, and, and he's, he's harvesting the olives, and he's pressing them, and he's making olive oil, but he owes a certain amount of olive oil to the master of the land in terms of rent. Somebody else has a wheat field, and so some of the harvest of that wheat means to go or should go to the, the land owner in terms of rent. So he's got a lot of people who owe him a lot of money. Now, he set a manager over all of this. He has a servant in place who's supposed to be smart enough and, 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 and able and competent enough to handle all of his business affairs, right? He was a servant, but he wasn't a, a servant who did menial labor. He, he didn't work with his hands. Um, he, 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 he didn't have to beg for anything. He actually had sort of, you know, a, a position of, of, of authority over other students or other, other servants. Uh, and so he's, he was looked at with respect in that household and in that community. However, he's mismanaged things. He hasn't done his job. 
And the master of the house actually says, you've wasted my possessions. And that word wasted is the same word that we see in chapter 15 about that youngest son who goes to his father and he asks for the inheritance before he dies. And then he goes off and he squanders that inheritance. That word wasted, it's the same word. He wastes the master's possessions. And so he's getting fired. And he says to himself, I can't dig ditches. This body wasn't meant for manual labor. I'm too soft. And, and I can't beg. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not used to asking for handouts to people. I can't do the hard work, and I, and, and I can't humble myself enough. So, so what am I going to do? I know. I'll call my master's debtors, and I'll cancel some of their debt. And so he does. One by one, he brings debtors in, people who owe his master a certain amount of, of, of rent, and he begins to, 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 to alleviate their burden. He begins to cancel some of their debt, all so that they will owe him, all so that when he's kicked out, he can go to them and find there that, that they'll receive him, that they'll take him in, they'll feed him, they'll clothe him, they'll take care of him. And it seems that he's done this not just once or twice, but to a whole host of people. So he's secured for himself a place to go for the rest of his life, right? And so it's at this point where we would expect the master to return and be angry and be livid and to say something like, I'm casting you out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw you out to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm, I'm, I'm in, in anger. He's going to just, just throw him out. And that's not what we see. Instead, what we see is, is the master commending him. He actually commends him. He actually pats him on the back. And that's unexpected, isn't it? It's not what we expected to see. And so then Jesus goes on, and he basically he holds this individual up, this dishonest person, and he says, there's something about him that I want you to emulate. There's something about this, this character that you should be like. And it's at this point we look at Jesus and say, no, not that guy. He's a scumbag. I mean, think about it. He, he's the guy that if the ship is going down, he's pushing women and children out of the way in order to secure for himself a seat in the raft. That's this kind of character. And Jesus is holding up and saying, there's something about him that you should emulate. We'll come back to it. Let's look at verses 10 through uh, 13. Oh, uh, be, before we move on, we don't use this word shrewd very often. You know, the master, he, he commends him for his shrewdness. We don't use that word shrewd. Here's a good definition of it to help us understand it. Shrewdness, it, it means cleverness and skill deployed in self-preservation. Cleverness and skill deployed in self-preservation. This guy is all about saving his you-know-what. Self-preservation. And this is the guy that Jesus is holding up and say, be like him. All right, so look at verse 10 with me. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So he's going to uh, contrast faithfulness and, uh, and, and, and deceitfulness, uh, faithfulness and dishonesty. And, and it's pretty simple to understand this, right? Like, if you've been given responsibility over something small and you can handle that, then you can potentially handle greater responsibility. However, if you're given responsibility over something small and you can't handle it, then if you're given more, you're, you're going to ruin it, right? Uh, I had a, an army buddy 
who um, we, we played a lot of cards you know, when I was in the military. We, we had a lot of downtime, a lot of bored soldiers sitting around playing cards. And there was one particular game where you know, uh, two, uh, two guys would play against two other guys. And uh, uh, the, the game was called Spades. And you, uh, there was a lot of communication that tended to happen uh, that's called cheating, like you weren't supposed to communicate to your partner the cards that you had, but there were a lot of guys who were really skilled in cheating. And, uh, and I had a buddy who said, um, my, my integrity is worth more than a game of cards. And, and, and the thing is, he said, like, look, if, if I cheat at a game of cards, if you catch me cheating over something small and insignificant like that, when it comes down to it, and when things really get bad, and when, when we're in our dire straits, or when it's combat, and when it's life and death situations, are you going to be able to trust me to be there, since I wasn't there in a card game, to have your back when it really, really matters? You see, if I cheat in a card game, then likelihood, in, in combat, I'm going to turn my tail and run. I'm going to leave you alone. So you need to know that you can trust me in the little things. Think about this as, as parents. You have a child that comes to you and they say, I want a dog. I want a dog. And, and you and your spouse look at each other and you say, well, we've got our hands full feeding and clothing you. Uh, we, we don't have the capacity to take care of a dog. You would have to take care of the dog. And they swear up and down, I could take care of the dog. I could be responsible. I'll, I'll feed it and I'll walk it and I'll clean up after it. Right? I could do that. And a wise parent does this. Here's a goldfish. Here's a goldfish. Like, like, here's a little tiny thing swimming in a bowl. And if you can feed that, and if you can keep that bowl uh, nice and clean, if you can keep a goldfish alive, then we can talk about a dog. But if I'm replacing that goldfish every three days, there's no way you're getting a dog. I really wish we would have started with a dog or a goldfish. <laughs> we did start with a dog. Anyway, if you're faithful in something small, you can be trusted with more. If you can't be trusted with something small, you can't be trusted with more. Well, that's Jesus' point. So look at verse 11 with me. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Uh, that's a little bit more complicated. What is unrighteous wealth? Well, uh, Jesus isn't talking about a wealth uh, gotten through ill-gotten Ill means. Like, it, it's not wealth... Um, gotten through corruption or through some evil act. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, be faithful with your drug money. Jesus isn't saying, be faithful with the money you got from that Ponzi scheme. Uh, be faithful with the money that you, you took from that old lady, right? That's not what he's saying. That's, that's ill-gotten sort of righteous or wealth. He's talking just about simply unrighteous wealth. He's just talking about human wealth. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that in following Jesus, there's a cost, and the cost is high. And we looked at it as that we as humans treasure. We treasure money, and we treasure time, and we treasure uh, relational capital. And the reality is, is if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you in all three of those areas. But those are forms of unrighteous wealth. And they're unrighteous wealth because they're not eternal wealth. Because you can't take them with you when you die. Um, Jesus says this in chapter 12, verse 33. He says, Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus is pointing us to a treasure that can't be stolen from us. He's, he's pointing to a wealth of treasure that will not diminish over time. It will not change with a fluctuating, uh, fluctuating percentage rate. 
It won't change with a fluctuating economy. There is a, there is a treasure which you can have in heaven that cannot be taken away from you. And so use your unrighteous wealth now. Use the money and the time and the relational capital you have now in order to invest in that eternal form of wealth. Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? What's yours? He talks about that which is another's. What do you believe belongs to you? I remember uh, paying off my first car, right? That was huge. This is mine now, right? Someday I hope to experience what it's like to pay off a house, right? But, but the idea that it's mine, it's actually not true. We look at what we have and we say, well, I have this because I got the education. I got the degree, it got me the job, and that got me the income, and so the fruit of that is what I have earned. Great, who gave you the brain to go to that school and get that education? Or you would say, I've got the work ethic because I've worked hard, I have earned what I have. Great, who gave you that work ethic? Because not everybody has it. Who gave that to you? See, everything that we have has come from someplace else. It's come from another. Even the fact that we are image bearers of God. Remember the fact that we have neighbors that we're supposed to love? The reason why we love our neighbor is because our neighbors are image bearers of God. In other words, they are reflections of who God is. Because of that, they have value. Because of that, God loves them. That's where human value comes from. That's where it comes from. Think about this, that what do you have that's really yours? And the fact is at the bottom, even the image that you bear isn't yours. The image that you were made to reflect, that's not even a testimony of you. It's a testimony of somebody else. It's a testimony of your creator. And you spend your life either portraying or proclaiming the truth about what that God is like or proclaiming a lie about what that God is like. But even the images that we bear are images of another. There's nothing that's yours. There's nothing that's yours. And so God, uh, Jesus is, is saying, if you can't be entrusted with what's been, you know, loaned to you, how will you be given what is truly yours? Then look at verse uh, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. One cannot serve God and money. I think there's a lot of people that believe that there's a third option, nothing. And the reality is, is you can't serve nothing. Human beings were made for worship. We are made to worship, and either we will worship God or we will worship anything and everything else, including money. That which you worship is that which has control over you. That which you worship is that which you give your time to. That what you worship is that which you give your thoughts to. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. That's what you worship. And for many of us in our culture especially, it's about money. We worship money in our culture. And Jesus is saying to us, you can't worship money and worship God. See, there's room on your heart for one throne. And it belongs to God. Will you worship him or will you give it away to somebody else? 
And you see, how you answer that question is who's on the throne of my life? How you answer that question has ramifications for how you answer other questions like absolute authority, about divine judgment, questions about um, uh, heaven, hell, eternal life. Who sits on the throne of your heart? What is it that you worship? Okay, so take all these three verses, or 10 through 13, take what we've just talked about here, and now let's go back to the parable. And here Jesus is, he's holding up this individual this dishonest manager, and he's saying, which would be like him, okay? So in light of verses 10 through 13, is he saying, be dishonest? No. No, in 10 through 13, he's talking about faithfulness. He's talking about faithfulness. He's not, he's not telling us we need to be dishonest. And, and when, he, when he points to this, this the master of the house who's, who's commending him, we don't see a master who's commending dishonesty or, or unscrupulous behavior or corruption. That's not what he's commending. What is he commending? What is Jesus pointing, uh, Jesus pointing us to? Look at verse 8 again. <clears throat> the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Shrewdness. Remember what shrewdness is. Remember it's, it, it's cleverness, right? In the pursuit of, of self-preservation, Committed his, his shrewdness. Now, the, the verse goes on, and it talks about, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. We recognize that in our world, um, the, the, the culture sort of teaches us that we should avoid hardship and pain at all costs, that we should, we should pad our, 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 our wallets and pad our heads and pad our butts, and we should make life as easy as possible for ourselves. That's the, the spirit of the world. And when we act in that way, the world pats us on the back for being shrewd, for being smart. You made a, a path that's easy for yourself. But here, here Jesus is saying, look, learn something from the world and affirm shrewdness. And we would look at this guy and say, he, he, he's dishonest. He's a scumbag. In order to self-preserve, like in order to take care of his future, he's gone too far. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He hasn't gone far enough. He hasn't gone far enough. You see, he's used shrewdness to take care of this life. Do you know that you're an eternal being? Do you know that you're an eternal being? You might, you, you might be here this morning and you might say to yourself, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in an afterlife. I don't believe in judgment. I don't believe in reward. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in, in heaven. I believe that when I die, this is it. I'm, I'm food for worms and I'm okay with that. You would say there is, there is no eternal life. The Bible says that God has actually written eternity onto our hearts as human beings that deep down inside every human being, it's written there, eternal. And, and we may try to cover that up as much as we possibly can because we don't want it to be true. But the reality is, is you glimpse it. When you hold that newborn baby in your arms, you glimpse it. When you're standing over the grave of someone you loved, you glimpse it. When you experience atrocity in this life, 
You know there needs to be a judgment. There needs to be justice somehow. You feel it deep down in the core. Like you know that eternity exists, that eternity is there, and that you were made for it. And you know that when your body gives out, that there has to be something of you that keeps going. There has to be a soul or a spirit that doesn't stop deep down. And you know it. You might argue with it all that you want, but the problem isn't up here. The problem is in here. But deep down, you were made for eternity. Let me put it this way. If you love your life, if you love your life, know where your home is. And this is not your home. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, uh, David Platt uh, is a, a, a pastor and preacher. Um, and uh, in preaching on this passage, he, he gave a, a helpful illustration that I'll borrow and give him the credit for, and I'll slightly alter it. But here's the, here's the illustration. Let's say you've been offered a job overseas, uh, maybe Europe. And, uh, and the, the job is a temporary job. It's only going to last for one month. Um, and uh, the company that you're going to work for, they're going to put you up in, uh, in a hotel, and they'll take care of your transportation to and from work. Um, but it's only for one month. But during that month, you will make more money than you will make in your current job for the next 120 years. In other words, a fortune. You're going to make a fortune in one month. But here's the caveat. When you get on the plane to come back home, you can't take any of it with you. Any money or cash you have on hand, you have to leave behind. Anything that you purchase during that time, you have to leave behind, and you can't ship it. You leave everything behind. The only thing you can do is you can have the company deposit that money directly into an account back home. You could bank all of that money back home. Or you can spend it there, but whatever you spend it on, you can't bring it back. You following me? So let's say this is you. Would you go out and drop a few grand on a fancy painting for that hotel room? Would you go out and buy expensive furniture Right? Would you drop, you know, six or eight thousand dollars on that sleep number bed you've always wanted that you can't bring back with you? Right? Would you go and, and, and would you spend, you know, all sorts of money on a new wardrobe, brand new clothes to fill a closet with, and brand new shoes? And, and would, you, would you buy jewelry for yourself and expensive watches and, and handbags? Would you go and deck yourself out, dress yourself to the nines, and build this beautiful closet you can't bring back with you? Would you drop a couple hundred grand on that sports car to drive back and forth to work for a few weeks that you can't bring back with you? Would you go out to eat at, at fancy dinners and, and, and expensive restaurants? Would you throw lavish parties for people who the moment you step on that airplane will have forgotten your name anyway? Do you see what I'm, where I'm going with this? Would you do that? Or would you say to yourself, for one month, I can eat Top Ramen. I mean, for one month, I can sleep in an uncomfortable bed. For one month, I can wash my clothes out in a sink. For one month, I could do anything. Why would I live like a king in one month to spend the rest of my life lock up like a pauper when I could live like a pauper for just one month in order to live the rest of my life like a king? See, it all comes down to this. Where is your home? And see, many of us are living like this is our home. 
And God may give you 100 years of life on this earth, but that is a grain of sand compared to the eternity that lies before us. That is a drop in the bucket. No, it's a drop in the ocean. This life compared to eternity. And yet we are living like this is all there is. And we're buying expensive painting to put it on our walls. And we're buying furnishings. And we're, we're driving expensive cars. And we're, we're doing all of this stuff to make this feel more and more like home. And the more we do it, the more its claws sink into us and the harder it is to believe that there's any other reality other than this one. See, Jesus is saying to us, love yourself. Love yourself enough to preserve yourself, to save your eternal self. Be shrewd in that way. You know, shrewdness in order to preserve this life will mean rejection of God and using people. Shrewdness in pursuing eternal life will mean loving God and loving your neighbor. It will look differently. But Jesus is exhorting us to a shrewd self-preservation attitude for the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's two things that I want to clarify on. Two things I'm not saying. First, when I talk about loving yourself, I'm not talking about esteeming yourself. I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm not talking about you looking in the mirror saying, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. I'm not talking about self-esteem. Because the truth of the matter is, in and of yourself, you're not lovable. Sorry. You're not beautiful enough, you're not smart enough, you're not educated enough, you're not hardworking enough, you're just not enough in and of yourself. The only thing that makes you lovable is the fact that God has given you his image. You're an image bearer of God. He loves you. That's what makes you lovable. That's what makes you lovable. But because he loves you, because he loves you, that's what matters. And that's why you should love yourself. Because the God of the universe loves you. Why would you not? The second thing I want to clarify is you can't preserve yourself. You can't save yourself. This parable is, is a really broken low image of a truer, better story. The gospel. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a master. There's a master over everything. And he created humanity in his image, in the center of it all. And what did he do? He said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue it, rule over the fish of the air and the, or the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. He gave us this management over his creation. He made us managers. But what did we do with it? We wasted it. We wasted it. We rejected him. We rebelled against him. We went our own way. We did what we wanted to do. We said, we're the own authority. That, we're the authority over our lives, not you. We're God. And sin and death entered our reality and our relationship with this eternal being was broken. But God. But God, in the fullness of time, he sent his son to come. He takes on flesh and he becomes the managers that we weren't. He was faithful at every moment of his life. Every moment faithful to the Father. Every moment faithful with God, with what the Father entrusted to him. Every moment of his life, faithful. 
Remember in, in the story, the, the manager, he begins to, uh, to write off people's debts to the master. Erase people's debts. But he did that at the cost of the master. But Jesus comes along and he erases our debts by the grace cost to himself. Because he goes to the cross. This perfect, faithful individual, holy, righteous, and good, and he allows himself to be ex executed and put to death. He dies in our place. The wrath of God comes down on him. He pays our debt. You see, you can't get the kingdom of God without the king. And he's the king. He's the king. God the Father raised him from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he sits right now at the right hand of the Father. He's the king. You can't save yourself. You can't preserve yourself. But would you be shrewd enough to say, I know I can't, but I know where to go. I know I can go to the cross and I can know I can go to what Jesus has done for me. I know that I can go there and I can make him my home. Make him your home. There's a baptism tank behind me. And this morning we have somebody who's come forward to be baptized. And at this point, I'll allow him to go and get ready. Baptism is the ultimate symbol about what it is that we're talking about. Baptism is a symbol of death and new life. When we go down into the water symbolizing that we are imitating and following Jesus, as Jesus died, so we are willing to lay down our lives in following him. And as we come out of the water, we're reminded of new life, brought into a new existence and a new reality, resurrected with him, following him. The Apostle Paul says that if you are in Christ Jesus, spiritually speaking, you are already seated with him in the heavenlies. Baptism is the ultimate symbol of what this means to follow Jesus into death and into new life. It's, it, it communicates this message that we are meant for eternity. It's written deep in here. We're meant for eternity. If you're here this morning and you've never been baptized, or if you're here this morning and for the first time it's dawning on you that you are an eternal being, for the first time maybe you're realizing that God is calling you to himself, Maybe for the first time, you're seeing that there is somebody who loves you more than you actually love yourself, who's given you a value and an identity greater than anyone you could give to yourself. Maybe this morning, you, you hear him calling you to him. Maybe today you begin this journey. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you after the gathering, but maybe your journey begins with baptism. And so if you've never been baptized this morning or if you believe that God is calling you into a right relationship with him, I want to talk to you. In a moment, I'm going to be standing out there. And if you're going to be baptized, wonderful. I got clothes for you. You can go get changed. They'll sing a song. You can come back in, get wet. It'll, it'll be a blast. But for the rest of you, I'll, I want to ask you the question, do you love yourself? Do you love yourself? Let's put that to the test. Let's say you have a large income. You have a large salary. And the world has told you that as, a, as a, having a large salary, you should also have a large car. 
And you should have a large house that's got a large closet filled with large price tag clothes. What if God is telling you, keep the salary, but live with a smaller car and a smaller house with a smaller closet? Would you be able to do that and give the difference for an eternal purpose? Do you love yourself that much? Let's say you have large responsibility. You've spent your life climbing the ladder. You've been given this responsibility by the world and you've owned the challenge and you've overcame it and so you were given more responsibility and more responsibility and more responsibility and so now you find yourself with a lot of responsibility in your career but you have no time. You have no time for your family, biological or spiritual. You have no time to be about the mission of God. You have no time to serve like Jesus. You have no time because of all the responsibility that you have that won't matter in the kingdom of heaven. What if God is telling you to reduce your responsibility so that you have more time to bank for eternal purposes? What if you have large relationships? You are someone who is known by and knows with titles and clout and influence. You are a big fish swimming in a big pond and you know other big fish. You have large relationships. What if God is calling you to small relationships? What if he's calling you to have relationships with the poor and the powerless? What if he's calling you to insignificant people, small people by this world's standards? What if he's calling you to that? Do you love yourself that much? You see, you might look at me this morning and say, Justin, that's too far. And if those are my words, then let them leave where, the, where they are. But if those are the words of the Spirit, then maybe it's not far enough. Now, I know people in this church who have large salaries, and they are using their large salaries for the kingdom of God because their large salaries don't have a hold on them. And I know people in this church who have large responsibilities, and they are using those large responsibilities for the kingdom of God because their responsibilities don't have a hold on them. And I know people within this church who have large relationships with other people, significant relationships that they're using for the kingdom of God, but those relationships don't have a hold on them. Do they have a hold on you? And maybe your way to freedom, maybe your way to love yourself and embrace with shrewdness eternal life is to let go, to, to live on less to choose little, to choose simple, so that the, the talons of this world can let go of you, and you can let go of it, because this world is not your home. When you do that, it doesn't matter what you make. You'll find true freedom. If you'd like to be baptized, I'll meet you out there in a second. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you for your unexpected twists. That you would point to somebody like this, this manager and say there's something to learn from somebody like him. Father, help us to be shrewd. Not in the way that the world is shrewd. Not in a way that 
uh, would reject you and use our neighbors, but in a way that would love you and love our neighbors. I pray that that there's anyone here this morning, for the first time it's dawning on them that there is more to life than this, that I am an eternal being, and that I want to spend that eternity with the one that made me. I pray that, that if that's where they are this morning, that you will give them the boldness and the courage to come out and just start a conversation. And if anyone's here this morning who has not yet been baptized and they're ready to take that step and to follow you, to obey you, and to proclaim to the world what you've done in them, then I pray that you too would send them out. But Lord Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice that you made. Thank you for for coming and taking our place. Thank you for paying the debt that we could not pay back in order to bring us into right relationship with you. Thank you for the kingdom that you are going to provide for us. But most of all, thank you for the relationship that we get to have with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.